This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Capital One knows life does not alert you about your credit card. Hey, couch surfers, we've got nonstop tunes to keep you rocking while you work. Oh, and Colleen. Yes, you, Colleen with a K. Your free trial of Movie Plus ends tomorrow, and your card may be charged. Do you want to continue or cancel? So meet Eno, the Capital One assistant. Eno looks out for surprise charges, like when free trials expire, and helps if you need to fix them. Eno, another way Capital One is watching out for your money when you are not. Capital One, what's in your wallet? Limitations do apply. Essentially, what I've realized over the years is that the things that I most desire usually live on the other side of a wall of fire. There's this feeling that like right on the other side of the thing that I'm the most afraid of is the thing that I want and or need the most. So I've learned to kind of say F- it and just walk headlong into those metaphorical flames. And then I come out the other side and I realize that was my intuition about all the good stuff being on the other side of that was very real. Yo, it's cracking. Welcome to episode 130 of the Jim Rome Podcast. I am always glad to have you, but now more than ever, given everything that we are going through and how many different content options you have to choose during this time. So thank you very much for being here. This week, I am switching up completely. This is not a last dance pod or even a sports pod. This is a rock star pod. Literally, because my guest this week is the front man of one of the biggest rock bands of the last two decades, Brandon Boyd of Incubus. Not only is Incubus a multi-platinum band with a grip of smash hit singles, but the entire thing started at my high school. And you best believe I am going to talk to my fellow Calabasas Coyote alum about what it was like growing up in the 818 and cutting his teeth playing gigs in the San Fernando Valley. We have got a ton of ground to cover, so let's not waste another second. Episode 130 with Brandon Boyd of Incubus starts right now. Brandon, I have to say, I've really been looking forward to this conversation for quite some time, even if you have no idea who I am or how you ended up on a sports podcast, but I can give you some background. First of all, how are you doing and how are you holding up during the pandemic? You know, I'm doing very well, all things considered. Um, I could definitely, uh, I actually have nothing to complain about. I'm, I, my, all of my thoughts and feelings and uh, worries go out to so many other people, but I'm doing fine here. How are you? I'm great. I'm great. Thank you for asking, and I think that you stated that very, very well. So let me give you a little bit of background so I can explain exactly how you ended up here, aside from you saying yes. yes. Exactly three weeks to the day, the Pentagon confirms that three UFO videos that were originally published by Tom DeLong, famously a Blink-182, a band, believe it or not, that I do have a relationship with, they they acknowledge that, and it drops. And we're talking UFOs that day on my sports show 
because we're in the midst of a pandemic and there are no sports. Somebody emails the show and says, quote, Dear Rome, I'm counting UFOs. I signal them with my lighter, signed Brandon Boyd. Of course, those are the lyrics from your smash hit, Wish You Were Here. I played the song right after I read the email, and then I checked the audience hard, Brandon, saying, quote, you best keep Brandon Boyd's name out of your mouth because he went to Calabasas High School just like me and Eric Menendez. So here we are. Here the fuck we are, my coyote brother. Now, does that story make sense to you? In a, in a way, it does, yes. What year did you graduate Calabasas? So I graduated in 1986, which is really unusual because, ah, okay. so wait, before you, however, when I moved back to the Valley, that, believe it or not, the school was brand new. Like when I was a freshman, that was the full, first full graduating, or the first full four years of that school. That school was brand new. So I saw it go oh, wow. So that's that. And, well, one quick thought on UFOs. Have you ever personally had a UFO experience? And where do you come out on Tom DeLonge's Pentagon-confirmed UFO videos? Right. Yeah, and I've been aware that Tom has been doing that stuff for quite some time now, and I have to applaud him for um, following his passion, I suppose. I, I, I haven't talked to him about it. I haven't talked to Tom in many, many, many years, but, you know, we do have some history with Blink-182, uh, but it's been a long time since I've spoken with him. And, uh, uh, yeah, so first of all, I have to just applaud him for following his passion like that. Uh, what do I think about them? I, I'm not terribly surprised. I'm kind of shocked at the fact that it's taken this long for any kind of acknowledgement of uh, unidentified um, craft in our atmospheres. <laughs> right. As far as what I think it is, I, I am not uh, at liberty to say. I honestly don't know. I don't know what that stuff is, but it's fascinating. And I love uh, being perplexed by the sheer magnitude of possibilities around that stuff. So I agree with you. I agree with you that I applaud him following his passion. And I think without going too deep, and I don't want to speak out of school, it would seem to be somewhat arrogant to think we're the only ones, but I don't really know, but For it is sure. curious to think. Listen, you know, back yeah. to the other. I, I, I'm obviously I'm eager to talk to you about your art and your process and the band, but it, I really am blown away that this journey started at Calabasas High School because I did spend four years walking those same grounds, four of the more awkward mm. years of my life, but four years at the same edifice nonetheless. Like, was there something in the walls there for you, or was it fate and destiny, and was this going to happen regardless of where you went to high school? The only thing that I knew to be destiny was the fact that I wasn't uh, I wasn't going to have a a normal job. In fact, I kind of resigned while I was at Calabasas High School when I was about sixteen or seventeen years old. I um, accepted that I would likely be uh, a struggling artist, but I'd be happy as an artist. So the fact that our band has uh, had any success at all is surprising to me to say the least but also a welcome surprise <laughs> sure um but uh yeah i don't know what it is there, there's definitely something about calabasas something about the san fernando valley um i think that maybe there's some toxin in the water that <laughs> some people uh a little trippier than other people i don't really know but uh there's been do we have any like serial killers that have come from Calabasas? Do we know? <laughs> Eric Menendez. Oh my god. Yeah, you Dude, said his name. He went to the school. <laughs> yes. Like he was not oh, I'm not man. talking Calabasas or Area Code eight one eight. My friend, I'm talking the same school you and I went to. He spent time there. 
What year did he graduate? I, I don't remember. I, I want to say it came before you, I think. I'm going to look it up. But mm-hmm. And he did not spend four years there, but that, that's about as serial as it gets. Yeah, yeah. That's scary. 88. There's a... Uh, uh, so eighty, you graduated eighty six, and that was the first. No, I was actually my bad. I'm sorry. No, I'm sorry. I was eighty two. I graduated college in eighty six, so I was eighty two. Oh, got it. Okay, because I had heard tell that um, Brett Easton Ellis's book, uh, Less Than Zero, was about Calabasas High School in the eighties. I don't know if that's entirely true, but I've heard that over the years. I you know if that's yeah. I don't know real? if that's true, but I'm going to go with that. I, I hope that's true. I did not know that that was true. <laughs> and I good. wish. I'm I'm gonna roll with that. So like the eight one eight, it's got it's got kind of a bad rap, right? Like for instance, I remember I grew up on the west side, and was my parents moved out there, and we moved to Hidden Hills in 1976 mm. because they had a factory, they were manufacturers, and I remember when I signed with CAA, my agent, like he was so weird about it. He's like, well, what is there to do out there? Are there any restaurants out there? I'm like, yeah, man, they've got running water out there, they've got restaurants, they've got life, there are people. Like, dude, why are you being so weird on the west side? But people, it's got a bad rap, right? The 818. It did. It did. I feel like it, it's come a long way. Um, in, in certain respects, it's come a long way and then gone all the way off to the deep end. Mm. <laughs> you know, it's become yeah. sort of an enclave of uh, celebrity culture, Calabasas, which is so weird because when you and I were growing up there, it was kind of like an off-the-beaten-path quasi-suburb, but it was mostly like horse people and people that wanted to homestead and be kind of away from L.A. And so those were my takeaways from it. You know, I, I grew up in Woodland Hills from when I was a little kid, and then I moved to Calabasas when I think I was about 11. And uh, it was amazing because there was no television reception where I lived, so we didn't have cable. So my brothers and I were essentially brought up outdoors, and, you know, we were learning how to... Uh, catch snakes with our hands and befriend tarantulas and learning about native plant species and yes. got just bored enough that at a certain point during you know our teenage years we all started playing music and then our parents were kind enough to let us make uh just a, a, a terrible ruckus in the garage for a number of years when we started our band incubus so i think that a little bit of boredom is actually a wonderful thing Man, that is so right. You're so right what you said, because my parents, I mentioned Hidden Hills, they they were like wannabe horsemen, and we had horses. Mm. It was not really my thing, but my dad did, my mom did, my sister did. Like, when you were in Calabasas, did you live by the high school, or were you, you weren't a Calabasas Park kid, were you? No, no, no. We, uh, the house I grew up in was over near Malibu Creek State Park. Okay. I got you. I got so, you. So, yeah, it's still pretty rural over there, but, um, I ha- you know. There was a school bus that picked us up and took us to Calabasas High. So, so I got to ask, where did you go to middle school? I went to A.E. Wright. Hell yes. School. Me too. You went Man, there too? <laughs> so good. This is the best. This is the best. I so love that you went there. Like, now, the thing was, you were not a ball and stick kid. You were a surf and skate kid. So where did you surf yeah. and where did you skate growing up? Um, we, well, I learned to surf at Malibu, and um, that became just my favorite place. So there's... Uh, a place called Surfrider Beach. We call it Third Point, but sure. it's um, kind of a, a short walk from the Malibu Pier. Um, I still surf there. It's 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 a really fun wave, and I haven't been able to surf recently because we've all been trapped in our houses. But I'm looking forward very much to paddling back out pretty soon. Uh, but then, when there was no waves, we would skate, and we would basically skate 
in the Malibu parking lots. We'd skate all over uh, in the Calabasas parking garages, uh-huh. which were plentiful. Um, and it was so much fun because skating at, at that time was still considered like a kind of hoodlum behavior. Sure. So there were no skate parks that we could all go to. And so there was something kind of um, criminal feeling about it. So we would be skating and then we'd get chased by security guards. And that was like part of the fun. <laughs> we would skate illegally the and best. then run. <laughs> right. You guys were gangster. 818 gangsters. Like, <laughs> like, and I really do. And I will talk to you about the band. I really want to. But like in terms of the ocean, I know it's part of the quarantine. You want to get out and you just mentioned that. But in terms of the ocean itself, like how important has it been to you, not just to your art and your process, but really your entire life? Hmm. Yeah, it's, it's been one of those things that has been kind of a consistent muse for most of my life. Um, even before I had uh, consistent kind of creative outlets that I, you know, would come back to like music or like painting. Um, there's something, uh, well, there are many things about being either just at the water and you can just look at it and it can be inspiring, but I spent my time growing up being in the water and, you know, it was the, it was the place of refuge. It was also our playground. It was also a place where we would commune with friends. It was the social atmosphere. It was everything. Um, and there's something, yeah, there's just something about it that is both hypnotic and humbling because, if anyone out there who's ever surfed, you know that when you get worked over, like you can die. <laughs> yes. Know? Yes. And um, the, the ocean, you could be playing in it and it can, you turn your back on it one second and then you can get, you know, the life smacked out of you quite easily. Do you know, uh, I, you mentioned your painting and I'm anxious to talk to you about your visual art. I'm going to do that. Maybe you can help me with this though. One more thought about the ocean. Like I was landlocked mm. in Hidden Hills and then we moved to Orange County later in life. And I lived in Corona del Mar for about six months, two blocks from the water. And I, can't, I could not believe how it made me feel, like how it centered me. And to this moment, I have trouble even explaining it. But when we moved, I struggled with being away from the water without having mm. spent any time in the water. And I missed it. Like, and I don't even know what that is. Yeah. Can you explain that to me? What exactly was that? Why did it have that kind of effect on me? I don't, I honestly don't know the the, the science behind why that might happen. I have ideas around that. You know, there's, uh, you know, when you walk through a forest or when you're at the beach there, the atmosphere is swimming with negative ions and that stuff just makes you feel good. There's a, a physiological, physiochemical reaction that happens when you walk through a forest or when you're on the beach and you're breathing in that sea air um, that just makes you feel good and it makes you feel grounded. Um, it kind of gets you high in a, in a way. So that might be what you were missing. Um, you know, then there's also just like the, there's the smells and there's the fact that people are wearing less clothing at the beach. Maybe that's something you missed as well. <laughs> oh, for sure. There's no doubt. That should have been the top of the list. So when, right. when you and Jose and Mike come together at Calabasas High School and the band begins, was the dream to tour internationally or was the dream to get that Sunday gig at the Sagebrush Cantina? <laughs> Uh, you know, I think each of us in the band probably had uh, different ideas about where things were going to go. I, I just know that it was there was something undeniably fun about the process of writing songs and the experience of playing music together with these 
with these guys that, you know, I've been in a band with now for almost 30 years. Um, we hoped that we would get to eventually be able to like tour in throughout the United States. And then as the longer we were playing shows, we started to dream about touring in, in Europe and, and even further than that. And still to this day, um, I'm amazed at some of the places we get to visit just, uh, about, not even two years ago, just over two years ago, we played in India for the first time hmm. and like 10,000 people showed up. It was wow. so much fun. Wow. <laughs> I couldn't believe it, you know, and India is one of those places that I have always dreamt about visiting. And so it was, um, it was amazing to go there and to, to make music, but there was also a bittersweet element to it in that we were only there for four days <laughs> right. all that way. Uh, but on the same trip, we actually uh, also went to South Africa and we did a couple of shows and we were there for about 10 days. And uh, so, yeah, it's, it's never in my wildest dreams that I think that we would be playing uh, in India or in South Africa, um, let alone touring outside of California. So like I said earlier, the whole thing has been a truly welcomed surprise. Um, there's one place though in the United States that we still haven't played one state, which and um, Vermont. Why is that? I don't, why are you saving know. Vermont? I don't know what it is. It's not that we don't want to play there. We would love to play in Vermont, but maybe it's like a, uh, Honestly, I, I, I can't fathom why we just haven't been there yet, but we've played every other state, like, you know, countless times. So we'll Dude, see. Maybe that's in the cards for us whenever we get to go back out on tour. Dude, how weird is that? I mean, are you avoiding Vermont or is Vermont avoiding you? How is that, how is that even possible? I think Vermont's avoiding me. I think maybe Vermont heard that I've been uh, almost entirely dairy-free my whole life, and so <laughs> all the cheese making that goes on there, they got offended culturally. I don't know. They got to get over that. <laughs> They got to get over that, you, you know. Right. So, like, when you when the band first came together, were you clearly the singer, or maybe did you just have the look and the PA? <laughs> there was a, a little bit of truth to all of that. Um, I didn't. I was tinkering with the guitar a little bit, but then Mikey, who I grew up with, you know, since um, middle school, he was immediately fantastic at the guitar. He just excelled at it, and they looked at me and. and I liked, you know, we were hanging out together and Jose and Mikey looked at me. They're like, you have long hair and you never wear a shirt. You should be the singer. <laughs> Great. So that seems to work out. Granted, I didn't know how to sing. Uh, and I had just kind of started becoming interested in, in poetry, reading poetry and writing poetry. And I was obsessed with a handful of bands. Um, and then once I got myself like a secondhand PA from a local pawn shop, then I was like the singer. Like, okay, now you have long hair, you never wear a shirt, and you have the PA, you're the singer. <laughs> it's so good. And then I wonder what happened then. Like, for instance, I'm in my mid-50s. I've done this for the better part of 30 years. I'm only now getting used to the sound of my own voice. So what was it like the first time you heard your voice in playback? That's an interesting question. It's honestly, it's fucking terrifying. Right. Uh, I... Still to this day, when I hear even my speaking voice played back to me, I'm like, that's something's wrong with the tape. Like that. <laughs> is that really how I sound? No, bro, that's like, how I, you I sound. Think <laughs> I think that's maybe not an uncommon reaction to, to one's voice. So scale that up a little bit. And I hear myself singing on like a recording for the first time. I actually like I kind of freaked out a little bit. Like I, 
it did not sound that way in my ears. And I hated the way my voice sounded. So it was so like clear and didn't have any like grit or grime on it. And I, I, I didn't like that. So I struggled with that for a long time. And I, you know, part of that process was learning how to sing. Part of the process of learning how to sing is learning what your unique voice sounds like on tape. And then so you learn to manipulate that and you learn what you can and can't do and et cetera, et cetera. Now, there's something really fascinating also in this in that it took you a while to get used to the sound of your voice. And even as, you know, a super successful front man, you actually were kind of shy and introverted as you were younger, especially. And it's not something that like you exploded onto the stage and this is where you felt comfortable and this is where you lived. In fact, you were kind of afraid of it, but then you had a series of mm -hmm. dreams where you worked through it. What were those dreams about and how did that impact your craft and your life? Yeah, you know, I, I was terrified of of going on stage. I was okay with like singing in front of a handful of friends in in our backyard or in our garage or something like that. And even then, there was something kind of nerve wracking about that. So I I, I don't know. It, it something happened at a certain point, and it's not a, it's not that I don't experience nervousness before we perform. Um, I, I honestly think that there's something really good about nerves. They they kind of they're they're a, a uh, they're informative. You know, in the same way that like pain can be informative in your body. Like when something hurts, it's like you should probably pay attention to that, and sure. you can learn what what not to do. And um, nerves for me are kind of a signal that it's like, oh yeah, you're still you're still not an expert and that's a good thing. I think that it's good to have kind of some semblance of a beginner's approach to these forums that we walk into lest we become, you know, kind of these egomaniacal uh, shitheads who <laughs> arrive and think that they've, they're God's gift to, you know, music or performance. And that's when stuff usually goes south. So, uh, a little bit of humility in approaching these situations, I think, is a good thing. But anyway, in, in regard to your question, I think that at a certain point, whether it was from experiences in dreams or work that I, I, I've done and, and continue to do around pushing past uh, fear um, and, and self-limitations and inhibitions, I, essentially what I've realized over the years is that the things that I most desire usually live on the other side of a wall of fire, uh, metaphorically speaking, not literal fire, but um, there's this feeling that like right on the other side of the thing that I'm the most afraid of is the thing that I uh, want and or need the most. So I've learned to kind of say fuck it and just walk headlong into those metaphorical flames. And then I come out the other side and I realize that that was my intuition about all the good stuff being on the other side of that is very, was very real. Um, so yeah, that's kind of how I've been approaching it thus far. I love that. That is strong. You know, I have one sports analogy for you and it goes back to when you said you had to learn how to sing like Michael Jordan, who's been the subject of a documentary. If you guys, if you guys have cable now, maybe you've seen that or maybe not. Anyway, <laughs> the last dance. I've been hearing been, about it. I actually want to watch it. Yeah, I think, I think, 
but I, you and I could talk for hours about that because I think you'd have a really different point of view and a different perspective. But the thing about Jordan is it took him seven years to win his first world championship. We talked about learning how to sing. If you had to guess, mm. how long did it take you, if it took him seven years to become world champion, how long did it take you to figure out how to really, really write a song? Mm, that's a really good question. Um, I would say it was somewhere in the ballpark of right around or under 10 years. Mm. Um, I may have stumbled onto, or I should say we may have stumbled onto some uh, interesting or novel ideas in little bits and pieces here and there. Um, but one of the wild things about our band is that uh, we have all of our fumbles and all of our bad song writing decisions from when we were kids, they're all like on YouTube and they're all on iTunes and Spotify for everyone to listen to. I say this all the time, but most musicians who we know about have had the luxury of uh, their learning curve being hidden away in a relative obscurity, right. you know, in like bands that they were in in high school that, that nobody heard of. And our band that we're in today was our high school band. So all the songs we wrote when we were teenagers are like, you can listen to them. And, uh, a lot of it makes me cringe. It really, to me, we, we kind of came into our own or started to come into our own as songwriters um, around 1998, 1999, when we were writing and recording our record, Make Yourself. And then, as it turns out, that was the album that kind of truly like put us on the map for the first time. So but before that, you know, we were still uh, unconsciously, um, you know, showing all of our our influences and um, there's nothing essentially wrong with that, but you know, you weren't hearing the most original band in the world previous to make yourself. So does that make sense. It does make sense. And it takes time. I'm just, I'm trying to formulate my thoughts because there's so many things I want to ask you, but I want to be so respectful of your time. But it seems to me if it took about 10 years before you really became proficient at songwriting that would put you right around that time of make yourself so what was that period like for you as an artist and for the rest of the band were you suddenly in this zone this flow state this sweet spot and did you have any idea that that was going to become the seminal moment for the band we did not uh have any kind of confidence around it being like this is it this is what's going to make us we were actually quite nervous uh there was a flow state that we were in that Make Yourself was written in about eight weeks hmm. from like having nothing wow. to being a finished album. Amazing. Um, and then we recorded it in just under eight weeks, I think. So so like four months all told, we wrote and recorded the thing. And there was excitement from us. We were happy to be kind of like branching out from where we had come from a little bit and feeling like we were coming into our own. But there was nervousness and vulnerability around that because we were um, there was a sense that we were going to alienate the people that had liked our first couple of recordings. You know, there was sure. this record called science, which is our first full length. And then when we had a, we had a record we put out when we were in high school called fungus among us, which is really weird and ridiculous, but some people seem to enjoy it. Um, and make yourself sounded, uh, like a, almost like a different band. It was just that we, we kind of, like I said, came into our own. So we were excited about that. We were excited to take that leap or walk through those flames, so to speak. Um, but there was a little bit of pushback when the record came out because a lot of the people that fell in love with the 
album that came before it, um, this is like early, early days of the internet. And there was like chat rooms and people would just like, they were just filleting us. You know, our hardcore early listeners were like, you guys sold out, you're a bunch of pussies. And what is this shit? And, uh, they slowly kind of came back around. Um, so yeah, there was, it was a process. Yeah. What was your reaction to that? Were you, I mean, did you, did you kind of go off your back or were you like, Hey, fuck you. You know, this is, we're evolving. We're maturing. <laughs> I thought you're supposed to have our back. Right. You're not happy for us. Like, how did you process that whole thing? I kind of learned to stop reading uh, right. comments and go, stop, stop going into chat rooms and you things bet. like that. They're just, I, I should, you know, the, those were the early days of the internet and things have really only escalated <laughs> yes. as far as the comment section is concerned. Don't go in the comment section. It's a snake pit, the trap. Right. And then you tell everybody close to you the same thing because they take it even worse and they get more defensive. Now the thing is at that time you did tour with Primus. What were those guys like? And what was that experience like? That was like one of the greatest experiences for us at that time. It was, so, it was such a fun tour for us. Um, so many reasons, not the least of which is that Primus was a huge like, original influence on Incubus. And the fact that uh, they even knew who our band was, was that was kind of enough. But then <laughs> they're like, come on tour with us. We're going to do the, the end of the world tour. It was right at the end of 1999. And we did like the New Year's Eve 1999 with them in Oakland. And, uh, we were just over the moon about it and things were really starting to kind of happen for our band. It was like the first time we really got played on the radio and MTV started picking us up like while we were on that tour. So we are uh, forever indebted to the guys in Primus for seeing something in us kind of early, you know. I need to ask you about your visual art. One last thought before we go there, and one more Valley story for you. So when I got one of my breaks in radio, I actually used to broadcast from the Fallbrook Mall high atop hot dog hot dog on a stick brandon literally no my gosh yeah i mean there was a radio facility up there and one day this guy shows up and he's kind of pressed up against the glass and he looks at me and i'm like yo bro what's up he said i'm greg hetson from the bad bad religion and i'm like right dude and i'm uh mick jagger he's like no really i am (laughs) and i'm like yeah right and and i'm paul and i'm paul mccartney and he's like how do i have to prove this to you because this was before, <laughs> there was no social media. There was no internet. Like, I didn't know. He goes, I heard you talking yeah. about whatever it was that brought him to the Fallbrook Mall. I said, I don't know. Why don't yeah. you go get a CD and prove it? I was, like, I was being a dick. And he comes back the oh next day with a CD. And I'm like, oh, my God, you are Greg Hetson. For, you know, <laughs> punk, punk guitar phenomenon. And I was amazed. Yeah. Like, these guys were, like, from El Camino High School. Like, this band was from the Valley. So it's amazing mm-hmm. that bands have done well and come from the Valley. So I'm curious, when you were coming up and you guys were at Calabasas High School, who, who were the influences? Who did you guys listen to? Mm. Bad Religion was one of them, for right. sure. Um, like we were saying before, Primus, we were obsessed with Primus. We were, uh, it, was a, it was an amazing time in music. I, I remember the year we started our band was 1991. And uh, that same year, I remember buying... Nirvana's Nevermind. Yep. And I remember in the same, I think I went to the Warehouse warehouse Music, which we had over oh, there, yeah. the El Camino Shopping Center. Oh, yeah. Uh, uh, I think I, I also, that same day, I got uh, the Red Hot Chili Peppers, Blood Sugar, Sex Magic, and Alice in Chains' Dirt. So it was like, 
th- those were the original things that really I, I got like obsessed with, and I really started dissecting what the bands were doing, what the singers were doing, and um, yeah. Yeah. I'm so glad you mentioned the El Camino Shopping Center. I grew up there too. And, and since I'm older than you, how about this? My first cassette that I remember buying from the El Camino Shopping Center was its Save On, of all places, not the warehouse, Save On, Kiss Alive One. Man, I rocked that thing hard. From Save On. Nice. From Save On. Listen, <laughs> Thanks, Save On. <laughs> Save On. Thanks, Save On. Thanks for everything. So I wanted to talk to you about your art and your process and all of that, but the thing is, you are very, very active and always have been with art itself. Like, was the plan to be a rock star or an art star growing up? Uh, star didn't really appear in my vernacular yeah, growing up. I get that. I get that. I just, I just, I just knew I wanted to... Um, have a creative life and I thought that would I thought it would look a little bit different than it does not terribly different but uh, I assumed that I was going to be either an illustrator or move into like fine arts and um, so yeah after high school I couldn't afford college and I wasn't interested in going into debt so um, I started basically taking um, art classes at community colleges around here between Santa Monica and Moore Park. And uh, got a little bit of education in fine art, and then uh, our band started getting some interesting opportunities, so I left. we all left school and went on the road. Uh, so, yeah, I, I don't really know what I thought it was supposed to look like, but it definitely turned out mostly different than I had anticipated. But once again, I'm happily surprised with the way things have turned out. All right, so never mind touring around the world as a musician. Put that aside. What's it like to exhibit around the world as a visual artist? Mm, it's, it's, a really, it's a really fun process. It's not as nerve-wracking as walking on the stage in front of uh, many, many thousands of people. Uh, but there is also a vulnerability attached to it because um, visual art, as well as I suppose audio art, it's it's so so subjective. You know, one person can listen to it or look at it and think it's a masterpiece, and someone else can look at it and want to spit on it. So it, either way, those are the reactions you want. You don't want impartiality. That's what I hear. <laughs> you want someone to either want to spit on it or make love to it, right? <laughs> or both. No, I get that. So then what's the relationship between the visual art and the audio art for you? That's been a tough question for me to answer properly. I I suppose the best way that I could uh, describe it is that they're all coming from the same place and they're coming from a deep, uh, not only a deep desire, but almost like a necessity to uh, bring out what was uh, in, so to speak. I feel like when I don't express myself in these ways, um, things get kind of locked up and blocked up, and I my insides kind of go into knots. So me writing songs and playing music and painting pictures and taking pictures and doing things like that has always been a way of uh, kind of untying those knots. And I know that there are a lot of people out there that can relate to that feeling. It's almost like you have to do it. 
Um, but I'm so happy to because while I'm in the process, more so than even completing the process, but while I'm in process, that's the best part. That's the part that uh, keeps me coming back. That's the part that's the most intriguing to me. It seems to me like, in, before I let you go, it seems to me like the, that's a good problem to have, right? Like you have this and you have to let it out. Do you ever have those moments, mm. and I have to imagine as an artist, where you're looking for it and it's not there, whether you need to reignite, rejuvenate, to create a process. Mm. I mean, like anybody else, right? Like we're, we badly want to do something and create, but you can't force it. Do you have those times when it's not there? Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, what that's do you do? inevitable. Then what do we do? I'm, I've learned, I think everyone's process is a little bit different here and there, but I've learned to not take it personally. Um, <laughs> you know what right. I'm saying? Like when it, you know, heavy quotes, when it doesn't arrive, um, I don't think it's anything that I'm doing wrong or I don't think that it's, um, I don't think that, that muse or the genie is mad at me. I just think that uh, it's just not the right time. So what I've learned to do is not take it personally and kind of walk away from it. So that's when I uh, start, you know, working with the plants around my property and I'll go ride a bike or I'll go for a surf um, or read a book. You know, there's like there, creativity is one of the hardest things from a scientific perspective to describe as far as I've been able to ascertain from the things that I've read. But there is a kind of process and it has stages. And uh, one of the stages that is the most sort of celebrated is like the the spilling where you're spilling forth all of these ideas and you're in that flow state and stuff just kind of effortlessly comes pouring out of you. Uh, and then there's the, the stage when you are making sense of all the things that are pouring out of you and you assemble it into either songs or an album or a painting and then you finish it. And then there's a stage after you're finished with whatever thing that you've made uh, that is, you know, it could be seen as the dry spell, but I, the way I look at it is it's uh it's almost like you have to replenish the container. So that's when I go for a walk or that's when I read or that's when I consume music or consume film. Um, and then you get inspired and then the process starts over again. So by not taking it personally, I could just kind of be in a continual process. The process never really stops. I like that very much. So before I say thank you and goodbye, I do have to ask who and what are you reading these days? Mm. I am reading a book right now uh, by a, a guy called Charles Eisenstein. Uh, he wrote a, a brilliant piece on medium.com called The Coronation. If anybody wants to look at it, it's, it's a relatively deep dive as far as journalism is concerned uh, around the potential, I suppose, spiritual impact of the coronavirus on our culture. But he wrote a book, I think it came out in 2013, called The More Beautiful World Our Hearts Know Is Possible. And I'm almost finished reading that. Uh, and then I just got uh, a new book. I'm a sort of uh, an amateur microphile. I'm, I'm fascinated by uh, mushrooms and fungus and mycelium. And um, so uh, I got this book. Uh, I think it's called Entangled. And it's not in front of me, so I, I'm not going to do the author any, any favors. <laughs> but uh, I, I do love to read. And I've usually I'm in the middle of a book somewhere. Um, it is part of, like I said, part of my larger process. What about you? What are you reading right now? Um, I will tell you that in one second. Like, just to follow up, like mushrooms to cook with or to consume, to think with, or what kind of mushrooms? Um, mostly 
just to kind of observe and 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 be witness to that they are neither plant nor animal and so they kind of occupy a space between species but so much so that they uh they're called the fourth kingdom and we understand very little about them but we are uh completely reliant on fungus and mushrooms our our our, our bodies work because of um funguses and molds. We are here today because of funguses and molds. Uh, most of the food we consume is here because of funguses and molds. And it's one of those things that's really easy to overlook because most of the, uh, the, the, the mushroom kingdom is invisible. It's under the soil. So there's, it's like this universe you can dive into and that you can get super geeky with it. And there are people out there that are hardcore nerds about mushrooms. Mm. So Interesting. Um, I have... I have a little bit of space where I am up here in the Santa Monica mountains. And, um, for some reason there are just, there are hundreds of mushrooms in any given part of the week. So it's fun to go around and see the different, the different species of them that pop up. I think that's interesting. And to answer your question, I'm not, I'm not playing this game at nearly as deep a level as you are. I just, I'm kind of at a point in my life and here's the really honest answer. I'm trying to do better. I'm trying to be better. I'm trying to self-actualize. And by that, I mean, I'm just trying to be a better version of myself. I'm trying to push myself a little bit harder. I find myself reading works of nonfiction. I'm kind of, you know, politics and military aside, I'm kind of fascinated by this this brand of Navy SEAL, which is shown up. That's like, do more, be more, sacrifice more. Mm. I, I don't know. I'm just, I'm trying, as I enter the, the, the fifth decade, and I've been in this game a long, long time, I'm just trying to find a way to remain creative and aggressive and push myself harder. So I, I just, I try to read nonfiction like that when I'm not prepping for my shows. Mm. Yeah, that's amazing. There's some incredible books out there that have come out over the last, just in the last 10 years, there's been so much stuff. If you'd like, I mean, I can text you a bunch of great, great, great books that have come out that surround technology, that surround um, sociology, psychology. Yes. I would love that. I would, I would, I will take yeah, you up on that off air. I, I would love for you to do that. And then to wrap things, and I can't say how much I've enjoyed this and how much I appreciate you and your time. If people want to learn more and get more information about your visual art, the books you've written, some other projects you've done outside of the band itself, where should they go to get the information? Uh, the easiest stop would be just my website. Uh, it's brandonboyd.me. Um, I tried to find a, a less, kind of conceited, self-centered <laughs> sounding uh, website name, but it also is kind of easy to remember. So it's just brandonboyd.me. Um, so yeah, they can see paintings, uh, the, the different books I've published over the years, and uh, there's lots of different links that go to it from there. So if anyone's interested. Well, man, I don't think that anybody's ever going to confuse you with the word or consider you conceited in any way. So I don't think you need to sweat that whatsoever. <laughs> I am so glad that you and I were finally able to come together as fellow Calabasas Coyotes. I appreciate the time yeah. that you spent. Brandon, thank you very much. That was just beautiful. And I do appreciate you. Thank you for doing that. Thank you too. Take care, man. I could not be more happy with that than I am right now. Man, that was a super deep, thoughtful, different, 
awesome conversation, and I can't thank Brandon Boyd enough for that. I am so glad that we made that happen. What a good, good dude, and what a good podcast. That's what we've been doing over here on the Side Hustle and what we've been doing for nearly three years now. Make sure you get subscribed. You'll never have to look for another episode ever again because they will automatically download to your listening device. They will find you. Back next week with episode 131. But until then, here are your voicemails. First new message. Robbie, long time no speak, brother. I got a message for Veggie in the OC. You got a big dump in your pants. Learn the call. You suck. Message deleted. Next message. Jim, thanks for the time. Ever grateful to have your ear. Did Matt in Vancouver say that right? Day drinking at Denny's? Bro, where? Because every Denny's I've been to has no bar. Unless he gets it from the pockets of the flasks of his servers in Washington State, where he buys his weed, around the corner, back behind the grease traps. Message deleted. Next message. Romeus Prime, this is David from Buffalo. From Pottery Road to Rogers Road, from Burger King on North Lake to Aunt Millie's in Silver Creek, you're welcome. Matt from L.A. is going to get his ass handed to him by the Cablin Asian at the smack-off. The Cablin Asian is like Tiger Woods. Matt from L.A. is like Stephen Ames. The Cablin Asian is like Brock Lesnar. And Matt from L.A. is going to be like Spike Dudley on Raw. I mean, he is going to get squashed. Bro, you are an idiot. Last year, you called out Damon Amendolara, and he got promoted to the morning show on CBS Sports Radio. Go back to McDonald's and give somebody a Big Mac, you idiot. Out. Message saved. Next message. Van Smack, listen, man. I was incarcerated for 10 years, man, and I always listened to your radio show. Now I'm home. I got a good gig. got my life together, but you, know, you kept us laughing, man. You kept us up to date on, on what the real was, yo, because you a real dude, man. So, uh, yo, we love you, man. And that's a shout-out to everybody that's in the state pen, federal pen, and everything, man. Yo, Van Smack is the best, yo. We your most favorite clones. Peace. Message saved. Next message. Hello, Jim. This is Lawrence from Springfield, Oregon. Not everybody hates Matt. I love Matt, and I love that he got a golden ticket. He's got a golden ticket. Him and Rick in Buffalo, favorite callers. Have a great day. Thanks. Message deleted. Next message. Buenos dias, Van Smack. This is a blast from the past. This is Manny from Oxnard. I haven't called the show in 24 years. You haven't let me on in 24 years. I want to get a golden ticket. I was at that tour stop with Tony Gwynn out there in the right field pavilion when you had the beers places opened up. We had a great time. Missed the show. Listen to you. Congrats on the Hall of Fame, my brother. I'm out. Message saved. Next message. What's up, Rome? It's Dr. Dave. You know, I got to agree with Hawk about his assessment of Canada. What makes Canadians even worse on the history of the jungle is the worst caller in the history might be me, and I am of Canadian citizenship by birth. So I will add to that total, and fuck Matt and Tyler. They're going to suck and uh, knock off anyway. Chris might actually do some shit, but he sounds more American anyway. So fuck them all. We all suck. Later. Message deleted. Next message. Romy, Justin from Melbourne. It's great to see some lady representation in Smack Off 26. 
with Tamika getting all freaky with it and Sarah T, who you know wants to pump up with Tom Brady. Sarah T is a sleeper. She can get down. She can get dirty. Look out. War the Lady Clones in Smack Off 26. Message saved. You have no more messages.